0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org.
1: Many of you asked to see this when I do it, so I'm going to do this very quickly here. It's kind of windy today, so hopefully the sound will turn out. Um, You wanted to see me burning something. Let me show you. Down here, here we have the Lord of the Rings, satanic filth that it is. And I said back in my study that I'm going to burn it, because it is satanic. You can watch the study if you don't know the evidence for that. So there we go. Burn baby burn. Just a, uh, just a kind of a foreshadow of what's coming to anybody that believes in the Lord of the Rings nonsense. And it's real windy right now, so got to be real careful. There it is. All the satanic garbage in the fire, getting burned. If you're a big fan of the Lord of the Rings, let me just say, with all Christian charity, you better get saved. You better get repent and get away from that stuff, or you're going to go to hell and you're going to burn in a fire that's a lot hotter than that one. I'm not your enemy for telling you. I, I'm telling you. I'm speaking the truth, because I care about people and I don't want them to go to hell for eternity. That's where Tolkien is right now. He knows better. I'm sure he'd be cheering what I'm doing right now. Hell's a real place.
2: I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You should know
0: by Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, your source for art, culture, politics, and religion. Serious conversation that tries not to take itself too seriously. If you like what you hear, go to iTunes and leave a nice review. You can also like our Facebook page for more content and conversation. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show.
2: Do whatever that you like do whatever baby in history and society, the censorship and destruction of books is horrifyingly attractive, conjuring up ingrained mental images of burning books. However, one need not light a match to practice the censor's art; a sharpie and straight edge will do just as nicely. As thousands of school children from days gone by can attest to the blacked out copies of National Geographic lining the library shelves and used for cultural reference.
0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the show. Uh, Danny Anderson here. I'm an assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. I'm very grateful you took the time to listen to the show. If I could push it just a bit, I'd also like to, uh, to ask that you take the time to leave a review on the iTunes page which drives more people to the show and makes us known to other folks. Uh, and then don't forget to follow us at our social media accounts there's a Facebook page for the show uh, and a Twitter and now even an Instagram if you want to see uh, photos of some of the advertising and such that we do. My trip to Maine I think was up there a little bit as well um, today 's show is time to coincide with Ban Books Week uh, and Jay Eldred uh, is back t- uh, to talk about books and the powerfully subversive role they play in human life. How you doing there today, Jay?
2: I'm doing great. It's cooled off a bit since last we talked, and thankfully today we don't have any connection issues, so that's always a positive thing. Let's hope it keeps up. Um,
0: yeah. I, will, I will say, uh, apparently I'm recording on campus today, and um, apparently there's some sort of camp or something going on this is the summer as we're recording this, and there may be a helicopter, for some reason, landing on campus today. So if uh, if we hear that, we'll just record on through. Uh, unless you hear the Wagner song in the background, we're probably going to be okay. So, um, yeah, so uh, if you hear some loud noises, that could be uh, a result of a helicopter landing on a college campus, for some reason, for children. So... Um, well, uh, Jay, I don't really have any announcements for this show, so let's just kind of jump right into the uh, episode about banned books. This is a, a you know a yearly celebration we have of some sort. So this episode was your idea. What's the motivation for talking about this for you, and maybe give us a little introduction to the
2: episode? Okay, well, banned books week has been a observance of mine for the last couple years, simply because I am largely into First Amendment rights and freedom of speech and freedom of the press. As far as the show goes, back when you first had me on the show, we discussed David Barton and bad history, and we were discussing what leads to bad history, and I think one reason certain branches of Christianity might be more sus- more susceptible to uh, what I'll call cultural errors is because they are either rarely exposed to opposing viewpoints Or as was the case in my own life, actively restricted or discouraged from materials considered objectionable or otherwise subversive to the community. Um, Throughout history, that censored material has been the written word. And I think it's also a natural discussion of our discussion of memorials, which we recorded with Jordan Posse. Right. Right, for books like memorials convey a sense of history and influence over our individual and our social memories I know that just after we recorded that episode he posted an article to the Facebook page about the destruction of memorials and monuments in the Middle East as a form of terrorism and in fact one of the books that I was reading for this episode mentioned the destruction of libraries in the same context whether it was because um, the U.S. or UN forces didn't actively protect them, or whether just through neglect they were bombed, shelled, destroyed, looted, what have you?
0: Right. Um, yeah. Let me just take a second to plug the Facebook page. That's one place that's become really cool because you know, like you said, Jordan found that article, and uh, we were able to share it and sort of continue. Conversations, And that one actually is, you're right. It, it turns out to be kind of a bridge between <laughs> a couple of episodes here. And uh, that's one thing that's kind of exciting. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up.
2: And so here you and I are talking and, you know, being good educators, we're making good use of our summer by recording several episodes to drop throughout the coming weeks and months. So while you and I are recording in August, I think this show will drop sometime in the end, end of September or beginning of October. And specifically today, we'll be talking about censorship and banned books. We might touch on objectionable material a bit. Um, If you go to the American Library Association webpage, you'll find that the theme for banned books this year is diversity. I think last year it was young adult literature, and I know that we've talked about doing an episode on diversity and how it relates to Christian politics and corporate worship but you know there's only so much time to get things done so that may or may not happen between (laughs) then and now Yeah. uh, if if anything else it'll just stay on the burner and who knows when we'll get to it
0: yeah the over under is probably not going (laughs) to this probably won't uh, happen until then I think it's actually kind of uh, ironic I didn't really intend this but I'm actually recording this at our library here at Mount Aloysius College Uh, and I think that's appropriate I think that Obviously, libraries are a place that are in flux right now in terms mm-hmm. of the role they provide to the community. Many of them, I mean, are, are pushing books out the doors to make more community community spaces and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I mean, as long as there are digital access to the books, it's, it's fine. But I, I think that libraries are a really important um, part of every community be it on a college campus be it small towns be it big cities the library mm-hmm. is a place within the city that kinds of allows people to step outside of their own little worlds and into this kind of um shared history and, and exactly and shared cultural experience so it's uh i'm happy uh that the library lets me uh crash in here sometimes and <laughs> and uh and, uh, and I'm, a, I'm a big fan of librarians in general so um, oh, yeah. go ahead
2: I was going to say I love the library as well. In fact, there's a couple online tools that you can find exactly how much value you get from your local library Mm. if you keep track of the services that you use and the type of books that you... Check out! I think last year the my local library saved me something like eight hundred dollars. Wow, that's amazing. So, well, I know you're a voracious
0: reader, so uh, that doesn't surprise me.
2: Right? Between the services that I used and the books that I checked out, if I'd paid for them all on my own, it would have been quite the expense bill. But you know, a few dollars of my taxes going to support the library does not bother me one bit.
0: Right, and and. Absolutely. I'm thinking more of like the metaphysical benefits of having like these kind of shared spaces. Um, mm-hmm. But there's also a tangible financial benefit uh, for communities oh, yeah. in the library as well. So, yeah, that is uh, – that's uh, you have to send me that link, and I'll put it in the show notes to this, to this uh, about how to check out how much your library is actually providing you. Um, Will do. Well, uh, let's try to be start off with being a little educational here for a minute and throw out a term that may be new to some members of our audience, uh, bibli- bibliocasti. Uh, what is that?
2: Well, this is actually a term that I encountered third-hand um, in an English translation of a Spanish interpretation of a work by Italian polymath Umberto Eco, who I think we've talked about on the show before. I think you and Jordan talked about him in your conspiracy episode with, um, name of the Rose and some Mm. things like that.
0: Yeah. And I'm pretty sure he came up in the Trumpism episode too Mm -hmm. with his little taxonomy of fascism. I think it was him. Um, so yeah, yeah. Friend of the show, I guess.
2: (laughs) Yes. So, Again, I'm not sure if that's the word he used, because I neither read Italian nor Spanish, but perhaps a better word than biblioclasty would be biblioclasm. You know, I just, for my own sake, that would make it align nicely with iconoclasm and cataclysm, mm. and then it would be essentially the destruction and or mutilation of books. So, oh. Fair enough. Right. So though the term didn't or didn't originate with him, I did try to find if he actually coined this term. Um, there's some references to it back in the 1930s, at least. But Echo identified three different types of biblioclasm. Uh, the biblioclasm by interest. This is someone who genuinely cares for books, but might you know cut apart a book to get a certain plate or illustration, or the book is more valuable to them cut apart than intact then did you have any comment about that
0: um i'm thinking of i was many years ago at this uh, installation art um, uh, space in pittsburgh called uh, the mattress factory i think it's called Mm -hmm. and uh, there was a a tree made out of books basically it was this gigantic installation piece of uh, i mean it looked like a giant oak tree with leaves and everything but every piece of it was a Destroyed book, uh, and, and so I'm thinking that seems to fit into that uh, yeah. that the, category, right?
2: When when I read this, I thought of you know the Pinterest boards, you know, yeah. a, hundred, a hundred things to do with. Old books or something like that,
0: right? And my daughter, she bought me uh, for a you know an office present uh, an old. I think it was like a Reader's Digest collection of four excerpted books um, that was cut into the initial D, <laughs> and and so hmm. um, it opens and but there's a big hole in the middle of it, and the edges are shaved to make a D, a capital D, and I, I keep that in my office. So yeah, this is uh, that I think both of those kind of fit under that kind of collector slash destroyer, um, right? Which that oh holy cow that could be an episode right there the the destructive uh, nature of collection uh, this is uh, this reminds me of sort of like Victorian uh, imperialism kind of <laughs>
2: so mm. one for the throw, books throw that one in the in the grand stew of things yeah probably four Anything. years
0: from now we'll finally get to that but yeah
2: right is you know but that's that's the good thing is that you know people have made use of of Twitter and the Facebook page and the and the website and offering you all of these ideas. Right, you know? <laughs> I'm not complaining. Right. Anyway, um, the second type that he identifies would be neglect, and this would go back to the libraries of the Middle East that we talked about back at the beginning of the episode. When U.S. UN forces invaded, they didn't actively try to protect the libraries. Neither did they, you know, purposely go in and bomb them. But through neglect, they fell apart, or were looted, as the case might be. Mm. And then finally, would be the fundamentalist, and this will be the focus of our podcast today. The fundamentalist would fear books for their content and doesn't want others reading them, whether because of politics, religion, morality, what have you.
0: Yeah, I think in sort of evangelical circles, I mean, it's probably more with, like, record albums or tapes or something, but the sort of bonfires where people burn satanic things, supposedly mm-hmm. satanic things, right? Uh, that, that kind of is a, an illustration of fundamentalist fears of of things like that. Um, I, I wonder if there's a fourth one that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, maybe it falls under neglect on some level, maybe a subcategory of um, neglect. But So I, where I went to graduate school, Case Western Reserve, Obviously, there's only so much space that you can right you have to store books. So they had this off-site storage place um, that mm-hmm. was technically available to us, but it, it, it had jumped through so many hoops that I think it was very rarely used. Um, and I'm wondering about that as a um, as an example of just sort of putting some place. Putting, I mean, it's almost like putting them in a tomb um, if you think about it in that way. And if that is a maybe subtler form of the of the I mean, it's removing it from the culture by putting it in mm-hmm. its own kind of space. And so I wonder if there is some sort of subtle form of that right there. Um,
2: I, it's funny that you mention that because in the book that I was that I read for this episode, and we'll link to it in the show notes, it has a rather long title, but um, they, he was discussing the medieval period of libraries and how at one point in the early medieval period there were no – Open libraries in all of Europe. Mm. And actually, one of the monks wrote that the libraries are shut up like tombs in perpetuity. Mm. So it's, that is an interesting.
0: That imagery reminds me of the Lord of the Rings movie when Gandalf goes to the uh, place to find the description of the ring uh, that he suspects Frodo might have, and he walks in, and it's just stacks of papers. I think he says hopeless. Is that what he says? Um, But, yeah, that sort of reminds me of that, particularly in the medieval context. Um, um, So, anyway, this is a a topic that shares a lot of crossover with censorship then.
2: Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, You know, I am not one to censor a book. You know, I I find it... I don't know, something just grates against my skin if I open a book and I see, like, words crossed out or, or worse, someone's taken a Sharpie to it. Not only because, number one, they Sharpied something out, but often it bleeds through on the back page and you can't read what was there either. Right. But um, censorship is often seen as some sort of a first step on the outright road to destruction of books and i'm not saying that it's a slippery slope you know i know people that for whatever purpose they've crossed things out in books they've made their own notations in them and you know they would never burn a book in their life but if we're going from point a to point i don't know c or d it would be the first step on that on that way and we could as I said before, most of the time this censorship is based on religious beliefs or some concept of social morality. And again, we could have a whole episode on objectionable materials. But looking at it from a Christian standpoint, if the Christian is going to censor objectionable material, then the Bible itself becomes suspect. You know, we would have to get rid of a good majority of the Old Testament. Right. So so there must be times... That even objectionable material serves some redeeming purpose.
0: Okay. Now, this is where we're opening gray areas, though, because I feel like certainly – so, again, I guess I'm going to music here um, because it's a readily available analogy that I can make here but the the warning label stickers on on mm-hmm. on albums uh, that is a form of censorship and and in fact, they do create clean versions of of certain songs that to uh, release to the radio and whatnot um, and so I mean that doesn't seem to be as pernicious as censoring. Oh, maybe Ulysses uh, by James Joyce when it when it came out, which was um, mm-hmm. highly comforted and banned. Um, it's one, oh, of yeah. the, one of the banned books that we can talk about. Um, and so, how? What is the distinction there, though?
2: The distinction between what I, I uh, lost. So between of- uh,
0: an understandable form of censorship um, and one that is um, that's more icky <laughs> to us as, uh, uh, as as educated people.
2: That is a very good question. I think it's one that we as a society haven't really answered yet. If someone out there listening knows of research or knows of something that I don't feel free to let us know but i think but I think often the problem is is when a group or a board or someone decides that they personally don't like something for whatever reason and then tries to institute that you know school wide or Statewide or what? What have you? For, because you know they're not content with the book sitting in their home on their shelf, their own edited version. They want everyone to follow their own standard. Yeah, if that makes sense.
0: It does. It does. And I, I guess to go to a literary example, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Donnie Darko. Do you remember that? Um, uh, yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal is a teenager. Um, I think it's a neat, creepy movie. But um, there's one scene in that movie where there's a a, a PTA meeting or something. And one of the parents is complaining that uh, the English teacher, who I think was played by Drew Barrymore, um, was – it was a Graham Greene short story called The Destructors, which I I, I do know that story. Um, And she Mm -hmm. was – Saying that they should pull it off the shelves because it teaches bad morals to students or to their students um, and it 's played up to be ridiculous and if you 've ever read that story, it is there's a a, a, a dark moral value to that story um, yeah but if if they were talking about like Chuck Palianuk or somebody, somebody like that. Like, I can understand uh, keeping that out of a high school curriculum uh, to a right. degree. I mean, I might not agree with the decision to do that, but at least I would listen to that argument. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I, this is, I mean, why I, why it's so important to have this week every year because at least it gives us a chance to talk about the criteria that we right. uh, should use here.
2: Which even if you don't agree, you should at least, and when I say you, I mean, you know, as – an individual we should be able to at least listen to the opposing side
0: right i i guess
2: and, I, that's and, true <laughs> and, and, I, and i and i think that when it when it comes to this idea of redeeming purpose you know it's almost like the old pornography cases where how do you define it you know
0: yeah exactly right um and and that's it, actually i mean becoming a, a republican platform issue again um as we're recording this i'm following this in the news they want to sort of uh go back to that. It seems to me a desperate attempt to delude the religious right into accepting Trump, but you know, that's a whole nother episode, <laughs> but, but, uh, it seems like a distraction to me at this point, uh, in our history, but, um, but we still have those pornography debates, um, uh, today. And should that, I, I mean, I guess Ulysses is an example of something that was considered pornographic when it was, mm-hmm. uh, when it was written. And so, um, this is what Banned Books Week is for. I don't know that we're going to come to any answers, but I think just having the conversation is useful, right? Um, and I distracted you. You go, go right ahead. No. Uh, about well, some, I, I was going to
2: show. say, I was, I was going to say that the conversation, even having the conversation, is important. Remember that in some of our past discussions, the the goal of the show is to challenge our beliefs. So, right, and one on, of the on,
0: I'm, and I'm perfectly okay with ending on open questions. I mean, that's sort of my preference. Oh, yeah. Um, I, we've been asked uh, in the past about what, are, where we stand on something, and, and that to me is less important than than raising the, the problematic question for us to go away thinking about it. With. So, uh, and this is a, a perfect topic to talk about that with. So.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, so, if we're going to talk about censorship, there's a couple different kinds of censorship. And First, that I the first one I wrote down would be some sort of a ban on a book. You know, we it is banned books week, and we just mentioned Ulysses. Um, a ban doesn't have to be some formal edict or decree. You know, if any of our listeners like me went to a private religious school, you know, they might <clears throat> not only may they have experienced you know censored nat- National Geographic's, <laughs> but But also remember hearing, you know, authority figures say something like, book or series X is not appropriate reading at the school. You know, even though in the handbook it would say, you know, nothing about it. Yeah. Um, Off the top of my head, from what I can remember being in school and then talking to some other educators over the last couple of weeks, ones that come to mind would be like Lord of the Rings, for whatever reason. Hmm. Um, Harry Potter, the Hunger Games, and... Other young adult literature, I would say most young adult literature, um, private religious schools have a problem with. I don't want that to be a blanket statement, but the response that I got from some of my fellow teachers did indicate that that was a problem in their particular areas. That's um, another
0: spin-off topic right there is young adult literature, because so much of it, I mean, it's such a huge industry right today, and as a mm-hmm. father of an 11-year-old who consumes this stuff, um, I, don't, I don't know what I mean, stuff pejoratively. She consumes these things, um, these, these books, um, like, really with quickly. And so um, I, it is something that's interesting to me. But what I'm noticing about those is they have very kind of dark adult themes, particularly the right. pers- the, the ones that are, I think, successful. And I can see how in the urge to sort of protect – the moral fiber of youth, um, the the young adult genre is kind of a front in this uh, this battle at censorship in right. these kind of fundamentalist um, uh, environments. I was told um, at a, a, pl- a place a Christian college that I'm aware of that there was a, um, um, a Harry Potter reading group formed uh, or some discussion about it, and um, they got all sorts of flack from um, students and from parents alike. And so, uh, and this is, you know, obviously fairly recent. And so there is something Mm -hmm. about the young adult that really makes, the young adult genre that really panics people who are interested in people's morals.
2: Well... If they're that interest, my question is always: If you're that interested in in the morality, why don't you use it? And I hate to use the phrase, but why don't you, you use it as a teaching moment? Mm. You know, if if they're going to read the literature, you might as well help give them some context well, rather than.
0: Yeah, and this th- is obviously my solution books. too, right? Um, yeah, this is obviously my solution. But so many right. people have these kind of simplistic. Moral systems, and when, if you see a wizard in a book, that is, um, they're going right to the Old Testament and talking about witchcraft and and uh, and the the abomination of oh, witchcraft, yeah. and and therefore there's no sort of redeeming way to read something like that allegorically. Um, which and,
1: yeah,
2: which is interesting because I've yet to hear of someone who would have, shall we say, banned Oh Lewis's space trilogy. Mm. You know, and we where we have definitely allegory, but, you know, you have aliens and things like that, and you know, that's just fine. Right. Whatever. Right, and I guess
0: the, the Narnia books are probably okay, because the witch is, the, mm-hmm. is obviously bad, right? And so there's no sort of heroic right. depiction of the witch. <laughs> excuse me, the witch. Um, we're going to get an explicit tag for that. Um, and so, uh, go right ahead.
2: Yeah, um, sometimes a school board, or a district, or even a PTA will seek to formally challenge or ban a book. And often this is because of the language it contains or the morality it promotes. And again, if you go to the ALA website, they actually have an interactive map of the United States, where you, and I think it might scope out to the world where you can see what books were challenged in what year and why. Mm. And, and and in the United States, a lot of it where it was you know um, a school board or a PTA mainly because one person brought a complaint against it, and so if one person complained, then then it's out. And I, this is one of the specific purposes of Banned Books Week, is to draw attention to those challenged or banned books. And obviously their viewpoint is, you know, everyone should have perfect freedom, treat whatever they want. And while the libertarian side of me would say yes, I also realize that there does have to be some context with that reading, you know. Right. Um, I'm not going to throw, you know... um throw Nietzsche at a 10-year-old or something like that, you know? Sure. Anyway.
0: Um, I, I, so I'm going to interrupt you one more time.
2: That's fine. It's a conversation. You're not interrupting. <laughs> um,
0: so I guess, is it fair for me to say that this is typically a conservative impulse? Um, and, and when I say conservative, yeah. I mean in our American political party affiliation. Is this typically more prevalent this, – is this impulse to censor and ban typically more associated with the right than the left?
2: I would say yes, only for the fact that – if again, if you look at the interactive map, most of the challenges to books or the outright banning of books have happened along, along the east coast. Mm-hmm. And at least politically in the United States, the more to the East Coast you come, the more traditionally it leans conservative. Hmm. You know, we can can talk about New England as well and how that, but then also some might argue, you know, they have that that Puritan heritage, which the Puritans weren't the Puritans of Hawthorne, but, you know, they do have that reputation, shall we say.
0: Yeah. Well, the reason I bring that up is that I I feel like this is another topic down the road. I think Todd Pedler and I want to talk. To some degree, about this is the idea of trigger warnings, and mm-hmm. on the right, that is sort of a, a term of mocking uh, uh, used against the left. But isn't oh, this is, is this basically the right's form of a trigger warning? Uh, the, the, the 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 demand to banish young adult literature that they deem to be challenging to traditional values uh, is that not the same thing as a trigger warning? Like, and I keep picking on the Oberlin the, the caricature of the Oberlin student, but what's the difference there i mean having, I, I ask it because I don't know that there is one
2: having not heard that question before and having zero chance to think it over just off the top of my head, my gut reaction would be to say absolutely yeah you know, I, we, we do not like this, this makes us feel uncomfortable, therefore we wish to remove it. It's the same idea you know if we're going to to use the term trigger warning for the ideas of the left, then yes, that's exactly what it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is, I think those are their corollary topics there. So, Um, and, and so, and like I said, you see this a lot, particularly, I mean, the idea, the images of this that comes up to me are sort of fundamentalist, People who have kind of, they're concerned for people's souls, right? Um, And so this is, uh, that's the motivation for banning these things. But it is a kind of, uh, I I think it it follows the same impulse that leads people who are in the sort of progressive left to not want to read Kipling or Twain because of using Mm -hmm. the the N-word or something like that, right? Right. Um, So, okay. Um, And there
2: again, I think it comes from not wanting to provide context. Yeah. it's, It's seeking the easy way out.
0: Settled, easy answers is yes. what we're not about here. So, um, okay, uh, continue.
2: Um, one of the other one of the problems that I have with banning books is that if you're seeking to, you know, keep material from a person, the way to do it is to not restrict it necessarily, because you know, human nature says, "Oh, restricted, I must seek it out." What what makes it so bad that? I have to be kept from it. You know what I mean with, mm-hmm. by that? It's like it's almost like putting up, you know, drawing more attention to it than anything else.
0: You create a desire for something that seems right. forbi- it's forbidden fruit, right? Mm-hmm. So it seems just bad strategy on that level. <laughs> OK,
2: right. And, and again, it comes back to wanting to provide some form of context. You know, we want settled, easy answers. You know, my personally in my life, my parents encouraged me to read whatever I whatever I wanted. Which may or may not have been the best thing. Mm. You know, I, I may have been the only ten year old Nietzschean existentialist in the county, you know, so my my reading my reading habits and books were not necessarily welcomed at school. But
0: Yeah, but you're a well adjusted guy, so
2: Well now. <laughs> anyway. Now and now I'm just rambling, you know.
0: Anyway. <laughs> okay. Not a problem. Um and, and so if they're not just sort of banning books there are ways that we're sort of like edited for television um, there oh, are yeah. versions of this as well right
2: the great bodlerization you know yeah if a, if a, if we can't ban a book then we'll edit it out you know when i hear of edited i think of the you know the reader's digest condensed books yes or the illustrated classics or even within um christian schools often their curriculum will have excerpts from great literature, but they will have edited out certain content.
0: Sure. An example for me, I mean, everybody has to read at some point Gulliver's Travels or you know Uh about it, but that book begins with, like, an extended, like, multi-paragraph masturbation joke, right? And so (laughs) that is uh, um, something that you don't necessarily see – uh, included in the Gulliver's Travels at, at, uh, at many schools, but that's an example of balderization, I think.
2: Right. Um, I know personally one of the excerpts I remember was um, something from The Grapes of Wrath. And I remember the first time that I realized that there, was, that there were objectionable elements in The Grapes of Wrath. And I was both shocked and relieved because suddenly things had a context and made sense. Because with the with the reaction of the the reaction of the characters didn't match what was told in the story. Yeah. That I had read,
0: and that actually reminds me. I I I'd totally forgotten this until you mentioned that. When I was a kid, I, I fourth or sixth grade something. I remember we read some Steinbeck group a book. Uh, was it the Red Pony or something like that? I forget. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I had to actually bring a note home to my mom to sign uh, the, to her give me permission to read that basically at school and this is a public school this was not a, a, a you know a private school and so um, I'd forgotten all about that but that's an example it's not I guess balderization but it is a an example of the kind of fear that goes with uh, confronting challenging literature
2: yeah and unfortunately it's not just limited to private religious schools or even elementary schools. You know, I've come across books in my public library downtown. In fact, thinking of it, I think it was one of Joyce's works hmm. and someone had taken a pencil and blocked out all of the naughty bits. <laughs> that that that's that's actually a note that they had scrawled in the front. Something like this is trash. I blocked out everything that's just crap or something like that. And it's like, Really? <laughs> you did that to a library book? What a
0: jerk. Oh man. Oh geez everyone's a hero to their own, to their own mind right
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, <laughs> although i have a, an example uh, the opposite of that a friend of mine in college he, we were reading virginia woolf mrs Dalloway, it was uh, okay. by, by virginia woolf and he had bought a used copy of it off the internet and it, when it came he was so angry cuz like there were sections of it that were like 47 pages in a row were underlined
1: <laughs> basically
0: <laughs> And so it was such giving such a scent to the book that it made it very difficult to read. And so, yeah, it's almost the the inverse version of that.
2: Yeah. In extreme cases, I know some countries have sought to ban an author from the country. And that doesn't mean the author can't visit necessarily, but his works are banned in the country. You mentioned uh, Joyce earlier. yeah, And his works were banned in the United States back in, oh, what was it, the 10s and 20s. And I think it wasn't even until the 50s that they allowed – uncensored copies into the US I forget I'd have to the history check on those of that dates, but, yeah. but it 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 took several decades for him to be readily available in the United States and then um even more recently you have an author like um Rushdie of mm. the of the satanic verses you know with a fatwa being placed upon him by the Middle Eastern countries
0: Exactly yeah that is sort of a um I mean Probably the ultimate example. Here's a person who is writing something that's deemed so offensive to a particular community that he has a death sentence put upon him, right? I mean, that's sort of the right. ultimate form of, uh, I mean, that, that's a, a literal version of the kind of action of burning a book is. Uh, when you burn a book, you are trying to eliminate a person's thoughts from oh, yeah. uh, from the community, right? And so they've taken that to its natural, they took that to its natural uh, extension with with Rushdie. Um, And actually, as you're mentioning Joyce uh, and how long it took for Joyce to be uh, sort of uh, accepted in America, I'm remembering Lionel Trilling's great essay on the teaching of modern literature, where even this is a person who would never ban a book, right? But he acknowledged the kind of um, existential challenge that modern literature, and he's talking about people like Joyce and Proust and Kafka, um, provide to a, a polite society. I mean, he sort of acknowledges the difficulty for, the, the moral difficulty for a society to um, confront literature like that in that essay. I highly recommend, I'll, I'll provide a link to, to that. I um, uh, highly recommend you to read that, um, not because this is a person um, who's suggesting censorship or banning books, but he's, a, he's acknowledging the difficulty of those books and, and, and the anxiety that it uh, creates in him to teach them in, uh, in, you know, early, in, you know, 1940s America. So. Right. Um, and so burning books. I mean, this is sort mm-hmm. of the most salient symbol of what we're talking about here today. And obviously there are, like, Nazi actions that we can talk about but what else comes to mind? And more importantly, I want to kind of get at why is it that that action is such a powerful symbol? And we can work our way to that if we have to.
2: Okay. I was going to say some of the ones that come to mind other than, you know, 1930s Europe would be the loss of the Library of Alexandria, although that wasn't necessarily an act of, you know, censorship. Most likely, the Library of Alexandria was lost over a series of invasions or natural disasters. You know, no one's a hundred percent certain what happened to those works. But then I would also think of other than Nicolas Cage. Well, yeah. <laughs> anyway, which which even then, I'd have to rewatch that first movie and see just how many books were there. That's because like, I seem to remember a lot of art, but not many scrolls or codices or anything like that. Uh,
0: it's been a while for me, too. Yeah, we'll check that one out. So, um, anyway. I, I interrupt. I'm terrible. Go keep going. Well,
2: but I'm censoring you're not, you. you. You're not interrupting. <laughs> no, censoring would be like to go back later and like cut out what I've said and you know make me say something I haven't. They don't anyway. give me any
0: ideas. So I'm...
2: <laughs> yeah. But I would think of acts where someone tried to eliminate the thought of someone else. For example, in the early church history with the Christian burning of Gnostic works mm-hmm. or, or the burning of, the, of Arab knowledge during the Crusades. Um, in the medieval period, you have Savonarola and the Bonfire of the Vanities, which didn't just burn books, but also burned art and anything else that Savonarola didn't like. Mm. And then, you know, burning books isn't just something for a bygone era. You know, I think a few years ago there was that southern preacher that threatened to burn 200 Qurans on the anniversary of 9/11.
0: Oh, I forgot about that. Uh, I remember that now. That's a that was. I mean, yeah, as political action essentially is right. what he was was using books as, as that right.
2: Right. His was a purely was was politically motivated. And then you asked why it's such a powerful symbol and I think you touched on it a few minutes ago. It's powerful because fire is one of the ultimate symbols of destruction. To reduce something to ash, to scatter it to the winds unable to be reassembled, reanimated, revived. And then of course with fire you have the imagery of an underworld. Of judgment by purification it's and I can't believe we made it this far without referencing it but it's almost like uh, in Fahrenheit 451 where the fire captain tells us that fire burns bright and fire burns clean
0: yeah I was actually thinking that as we were talking like we haven't really talked about specific uh, representations of, of this action yet. And maybe at the end, we can just sort of uh, you know, freeform a little bit about that. I have a few that come to mind, and I have a couple passages I want to read. Uh, but, yeah, th- but yeah, Fahrenheit 451 was written uh, in response to, I, mean, I think it was based on a short story called The Fireman, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, by Ray, Brad- Ray Bradbury, who was inspired by what he saw in Nazi Germany. Um, burning books, and, and I think that that was kind of the inspiration, if you call it that, uh, for that book that really has become the symbol of, in many ways, for Banned Books Week, if you think about it. There's not a right. better, really, book that represents the purpose behind Banned Books Week than uh, Fahrenheit 451.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so, okay, um, there are some, like, I guess related to that there are other some sort of like low lights <laughs> in the history of uh uh in the history of the world right um I think right. we talked a little bit about I think um and you have it written down here the Jefferson Bible comes to my mind right here's someone who right. has a kind of deistic idea of uh, of of god and he Physically removed passages from his copy of the Bible that conflicted with that, right? That that's sort of right. a, uh, a, a kind of a co- almost comical <laughs> example for me of, of of this activity. But there are many other cases, and, and you're the historian, so why don't you drop some knowledge?
2: Well, other than the Jefferson Bible, I was going to. I just thought of um, the index used by the Catholic Church during the. What we call the Counter Reformation, you know, the list of prohibited books or the list of books that good Catholics would not own or read or anything like that, Hmm. and I that that index lasted all the way to the 1960s.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. (laughs) Wow. So there were there like a a physical like
2: a a physical
0: curated list of things. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Um, Years and years ago, and this is. slight digression, I used to kind of dabble in making little documentaries which um, I probably don't have the nerve to go back and look at now but I remember I did one on this little town in Ohio and I was interviewing one of the older people from the town who was telling all these kinds of inspirational stories about the town's beginning and she was very proud of the fact that the people that settled this town only owned a Bible and maybe a copy of Pilgrim's Progress and that's all they had and this is why it was such a great place to live Um, (laughs) because... I, and I, that's always stuck with me is very uh predictive of the small-mindedness of that town but um um but yeah and and so i guess it, it's its own kind of
2: index if you will so,
0: um do you want to talk a little bit about uh uh baby speech from Fahrenheit 451
2: yeah sure um i'll actually link to or send a link to that for the show notes where if anyone wants to go and read it they don't if they don't have their own copy or can't get one there is a, there are a few places online that have the entirety of his speech, but really it's one of the central passages in Fahrenheit 451, where he gives the history of the firemen and how society moved from reading books to burning them on site. And I just summarized, um, looks to be seven steps to go from that society to the one of Fahrenheit 451. Mm. Uh, First would be that they were Truncated for time, and I I like it when my words kind of begin with the same letter. So, anyway, you'll notice that theme. Alliteration. Yeah, (laughs) alliteration. Thank you. Thank you, English professor. Hey, it came
0: in handy for once. Yeah.
2: Um, and again, these are the you know the condensed books. If if you have to, if the condensed book is all that you can read, okay. But personally, when I open a book and I see like abridged, you know, my gut drops yeah
0: anyway well yeah i won't even get it i just feel like i'm being cheated if i get something if i if i see something like that i remember when i was a kid going to the library and they had abridged versions of dracula or something like i wouldn't even check it out um not that i would have made that much difference to my reading experience at that young age but just sort of almost like on the principle of the matter i wouldn't i wouldn't even check it out um Mm -hmm. i do want to like dwell on this for one second though um Fine. The truncated for time that as a, um, I mean that seems to speak really strongly to our contemporary um, culture, our, our contemporary mm-hmm. moment that prizes speed over almost anything else efficiency and efficiency and, and that kind of thing, and so obviously um, long form journalism is very has a very small audience, right, and so right. people are much more drawn to quick and easy arguments like you see in memes and, on Facebook, right,
2: and I think. Isn't long form something like fifteen hundred words or over? I think.
0: Uh, I forget the, um, the the whatever dictionary definition of it, but yeah, yeah. But it's something. It's not that long, really. Um, right. But we're already at a point where it's too long for us because we want moving pictures, um, and mm-hmm. so lest we be too kind of um, high and mighty about our. Uh, aloofness from this process i mean just remember that right we we are already well into some of these stages that you're you're about to describe um yeah and and so and in addition i I wonder about the i'm probably going to step on toes here because i know many people love these things but audiobooks uh to me audiobooks are a different experience than reading a book now i'm sure some audiobooks work better than others um, like, I would think audiobook versions of Ulysses, frankly, would be just as good as reading it. Um, <laughs> but uh, because, I mean, you're not really supposed it's just you're getting into the flow of language anyway, right? So hearing mm-hmm. that is probably um, fine. But an audiobook version of Kant or something like this I, I don't think is going to work, right? Um, and I right. Think it's something like – I think people are claiming literacy without having earned it um, if all they consume are audiobooks. And, and...
2: I'll have to see if I can find – the study, but I just read an article on that very thing about what are the different, you know, the different centers of the brain that are engaged when you're reading the word on the page or listening to the audiobook and then the knowledge that you are able to retain from that, and the long and short of the article said that if one's going to listen to an audiobook and get the same benefit as reading it, you really can't be doing anything else, like you just have to sit and listen to it like actively listen to it as, you know, an educator would say. Right,
0: right, exactly. And, and I think that this is some, some things to keep in mind. I'm obviously not for banning audiobooks either, right? I have on right. occasion listened to them, though not very much, frankly. Um, and uh, LibriVox is something that for a while I would try to do on the train. But then I just realized I wasn't really remembering anything that I was reading. It was just uh, background noise for me. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, this is, I mean, truncated for time. My larger point is that in our society, this is where we are like all the time, uh, the immediacy of everything that we do. Um, And frankly, I think there's some connection between this and your second point. So why don't you go ahead and move to that?
2: Absolutely. The second point would be that books were then manipulated by the media. And in his speech, he talks about, you know, I don't know if he uses the word, but he describes a soundbite, basically 30, 30 seconds of Sound, although I think even today it's what the average sound is between 10 and 15 seconds, I think. Yeah. And then I also wrote down spark notes.
0: I saw that. Um, and I feel like the spark notes is a, a particular um, amalgam of point one and point two because it is truncated mm-hmm. for time. But there is also an interpretation that's imposed upon you when, you read, I was, <laughs> when exactly. you read
2: that. You're not left to make your own interpretation. They do the interpretation for you.
0: Yeah. And and I mean, obviously, as an English teacher, I know my students are going to go there. Like, I, I know mm-hmm. that that's the first thing they're going to do is read the SparkNotes version. And, and so it's one of my challenges is to kind of um, build from that to the actual text. And so m- much of my classroom activity when I teach literature is reading chunks of paragraph and, and doing sort of analytical work in, in that way live in class because I can't right. really count on the fact that they're doing that on their own. They're just sort of reading for the plot. Um, and, and it's a kind of manipulation, and that's, that's the way I frame it to them is that you're letting someone else tell you how this experience should affect you, and, and I don't think that that's fair to you, right? And so
2: – right. But, and then just thinking about it, I wonder how much you know the book blurb would would play into this as well.
1: Hmm. Yeah. You
2: know, th- this particular author thought this, so maybe you'll like it too. <laughs> and 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 I ju- and I just thought about like I haven't had time to expand on that anymore, but I I do wonder if that plays something into it as well.
0: I, there's a like a, an authoritarianism to that. Uh when you think about it like if, if I have to trust this person's opinion because it's Stephen King or whoever, right? right. Okay,
2: I guess I'm not a huge fan of Stephen King. But, you, know, <laughs> you, can, you can judge me for that how you will. I've read three or four of them, but
0: yeah, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a, a fanboy for sure.
2: Yeah, uh, third would be expunged for expediency. You know, um, a focus on your job or material wealth, or as I hear all the time, when will I use this in real life? Mm. If I'm if not if I'm not going to use it for my job, if it's not going to affect me in the future why should I bother learning it now
0: right right and this is where the kind of classical defenses of the liberal arts begin is yeah. is, is talking about this right the uh, the idea the kind um the pragmatism that we approach everything that is connected to the immediacy and all the other things that we've been talking about there's this kind of utilitarian um mechanization of our life that uh books get in the way of on some level
2: well, you you they would say get in the way of others find fulfillment in it. So sure. it's it's all perspective on that. But there is this idea that, and I don't even know where it began. I'm sure someone better informed on the topic than I would know. But I'm not quite sure when this began, where we moved from reading, even reading for pleasure, and then just saying, well, you know, it doesn't matter.
0: Hmm. Um, there are books about this, um, <laughs> but, uh, Yes, there are. I can't think of one offhand. If I find one, I'll put it in the show notes. Okay.
2: Yeah. Um, they would be replaced by recreation, you know, communal activities replacing personal inflection. Yeah.
0: You know where I'm going here, don't you? Like, I, this is probably so predictable. Um, Go sport, for Sports. Uh, this is yes. uh, in school. Like, I was at a, a school function for my daughter. She was getting some sort of award ironically enough some sort of reading award that she got and so there was an assembly and a coach gets up and and talks about how it's really important to play sports you should be in at least three sports all the time um
1: what uh,
0: yeah yeah and um, oh of course there's some self-interest there right because their funding is dependent on how many people actually um play whatever sport they they coach but um and i'm like okay I, That, to me, is ridiculous because you're leaving no time for the reflective activity that is reading or anything else, right? I mean, I could say it's just as healthy, if not more, to be in theater and band and these sorts of things, right? Uh, If you're you're just looking for the whole this keeps kids out of trouble and on the straight and narrow argument, um, I think there are better places to go than sports. But this is – I mean, even in our schools, um, the intellectual activity of reading is under assault by – the physical activity of sport.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And I'm in total agreement with that. And that comes from, you know, I coached basketball for a while. And this coming year, I'll be coaching a cross-country team. But I would never tell someone that sports is more important than reading anyway.
0: Right. I mean, if our biggest problem was that our kids didn't play any sports and didn't care enough about sports then, okay, you can push sports, but this is obviously just the natural default that that most people go to. Maybe we should push something else. So, Mm -hmm. hobby horse.
2: Yep. Uh, Fifth, they were criticized for controversy, and here we see the creation of safe spaces, the right to be on, and I agree that there there may be a time and a place for a certain kind of safe space. I'm not sure about that. That's something I'm still... Forming my own opinion on, yeah. but I've def- I've definitely seen this idea that you have a right to be unoffended, and I just don't believe that to be true. Mm-hmm. You need at some point you need to be able to encounter opinions and viewpoints other than your own, even if even if you find them distasteful.
0: I, I absolutely agree. Um, I'm not going to stop you there. Keep going.
2: Okay, then at, at this point. The books are avoided out of arrogance. It, you know, going back to the sports, you know, you get the idea that I don't read is a source of pride. You know, you have the um the jocks picking on the smart kids. If we're gonna stereotype, right? You know, not having or not reading or not having literacy is some form of being macho, and that kind of builds off of you know that focus on sports.
0: My pastor and I, my friend Rob um, and I, always talk about this. He's he's sort of simpatico with me in a lot of, in, in a lot of these ways, and um, and we sort of have this joke that you know if you tell somebody you read, they kind of look at you with a with their camouflage baseball hat and say, "What are you gay?" <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. that's the, yeah. and
2: I know I get this in the classroom. I'll assign a short re- a short reading section. You know, that's not in the textbook. You know, I might assign. Oh, what's one I traditionally give? Something from like, you know, two or three pages from the Epic of Gilgamesh or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, we, you really expect us to read this? <laughs> yeah, it's only two pages.
0: Yeah, no, just read Sports Illustrated. That'll be fine. We'll consider you educated then. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although, I, you know, when you talked about like jock kids picking on smart kids. I think even that has been complicated because so much of nerd culture has been co opted by frankly equally illiterate uh people like with the whole sort of video game and, and I mean the most you will read is a comic, right? So it's become about consuming the right kind of popular culture. um, Right. What what defines a nerd now, right? It isn't about, you know, pocket protectors and carrying a stack of books anymore. And so even that has been, I mean, the marginal has been even like more marginalized in that way.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. I I always tell people I was a nerd before it was cool, you know, (laughs) (laughs) before it was acceptable.
0: Right. Exactly. Anyway. Yeah, the Big Bang Theory cracks me up because I mean, I don't. Know, I mean, given what we see them do so many hours a day, I don't know how they publish any academic papers because all they're doing is playing video games and going to comic shops, right? Yeah, so. <laughs> it's
2: like where, where do we have the expediency of publish or perish? You know, <laughs> exactly. Where is the? Uh, there might have been one episode that dealt with like a government grant or something like that, and it's like. <laughs> This is not the way the world works.
0: I know, the anyway. only one who works is Penny. She's a waitress, right? And so alright.
2: Which that might be part of the the subtle the subtleness of the show anyway. Okay. <laughs> there there's another show for your uh for your list. <laughs>
0: okay. I don't know about that, but okay. Um we'll see.
2: Anyway. Probably not. You have you have a, you have way too much on your on your plate as it is. Someday
0: we'll get desperate enough.
2: Yeah. and then finally the seventh step would be books would were outright burned to, be, to bring a form of bliss and in thinking of the society in which this is being written I found it like almost a mashup of 1984 and V for Vendetta mm. you know where you end up with war is peace freedom is slavery ignorance is strength strength through unity and unity through faith mm-hmm. but then But then what is that faith predicated on? You've destroyed all records of faith, and by this point, you've probably destroyed all monuments to faith as well. And so once one starts burning books, it's only a matter of time before you get to um, Heinrich Heine, who said, where they burn books, they will, in the end, burn people. Yeah. um, And and you've got that in Fahrenheit 451 as well. Well,
0: and in... Now, obviously and the in, history of World and War II.
2: And and, and, in, and I was going to say, and in world history. Right. You know, I, I can't think of a recent time where an author was burned with his books, though. Um, Maybe you can.
0: No, I'm thinking not in the West. I mean, I'm, it wouldn't surprise me if something like that's going on um, in countries that we just don't – our news media doesn't care enough to tell us about. But, yeah, that is a uh, – um, uh, that's just obviously the sobering – um, aspect of this and if I, do I remember right that the Heine quote is actually from a play or something and, and it's referring to burning the Quran uh, do I remember this right um, like the, the the act the thing that the books that are being burnt in the exigence of that quote is, is the Quran um, if, if I remember that right I could be uh, I could be misremembering but um, yeah and so I, I'm glad you brought up the V from Vendetta thing too because Guy Fawkes is a uh, uh, obviously, this kind of transcendent symbol of rebellion in our mm-hmm. in our culture. And, and I'm reminded, and it's a connection to the Heineck quote, um, there's a, a great old um, kind of film noir movie. It's called, um, oh, geez, I'm forgetting it right now. Um, I keep wanting to say Northanger Abbey, but I know that's not right. There's a, a great old movie, though, where um, um, a... Uh, a serial killer, basically, is on on the loose in London. And at one point, it's Guy Fawkes Day, and people are burning effigies of Guy Fawkes. And um, and he actually brings his victim, um, dressed as an effigy, to Guy Fawkes and throws it on the pile uh, mm-hmm. to, to burn with the other bodies. And, uh, and it's a terrific uh, old kind of um, film noir, kind of horror film. And uh, and um, I'll have to remember it. In, in I've been-
2: I remember seeing that. Yeah, it's. But I can't think of it either.
0: Mm. He had. He made three movies. He made um, the the director of this. He made um, this werewolf movie called The Undying Monster. Hangover at Hangover Square is the name of the movie. But yeah, so Hangover Square is um, an example, literally, of a human body being burned um, in the kind of bloodlust of burning other things, right? And so, like, this kind of uh, uh, motivation to omit things from our cultural memory. Ultimately, we're omitting ourselves. Uh, that's sort of the symbol you get in, in Hangover Square. So. Um, um, so, I have a couple of uh, things that I want to talk about. What are some, like, recommendations that you have?
2: I would recommend the book A Universal History of the Destruction of Books. It's an attempt to have or to tell of various libraries, books, works that were lost or destroyed from ancient times to the present. So you get everything from, you know, Plato to modern Iran and Iraq.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we shouldn't leave out Plato, should we? Uh, I mean, in the Republic, he wanted to ban the poet, right, from society. That, mm-hmm. is, that is every bit as much of uh, the, the activity that we're talking it's- about here.
2: This is not a new activity. It's been around almost as long as we've had the written word.
0: And advocated by people who we celebrate uh on and you know in, in many ways like Plato. So yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. I would also recommend reading not only um Beatty's speech from Fahrenheit 451, but just read Fahrenheit 451 because it's a good book in my opinion. It's
0: it I think it's essential western literature.
2: Good. I'm I'm glad that we agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, do check out the American Library Association website you know, to get more of a history of Banned Books Week. Again, there's some interactive maps there um, with Banned Books Week going on right now. If you want to share some images or whatnot, they've got some pre-made banners and such that you can use. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as a Twitter account, and this is kind of like off, maybe off topic but there is a Chaucer parody account okay Chaucer doth tweet and it's not and it's not just him like parodying Chaucer like he talks a lot about the importance of books you know in ostensibly Chaucerian English okay not, although, although not necessarily Chaucer otherwise very few people would actually be able to understand it right Um. he talks you know Every year he goes on a road trip with Dante, and that's always fun to follow. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, so just as a bit of light entertainment, I'd encourage you to follow Chaucer Duth Tweet. And then I will also link to a PDF from a Christian university on their biblical approach to objectionable elements. Mm. I don't necessarily agree with everything in the document, but I do think it gives a good starting point for how Christians approach objectionable material in literature.
0: Oh, that would be great. That's really interesting. I like that. Um, well, I want to, I'm just going to kind of focus on Nathaniel Hawthorne. Um, you, The thing that the, whatever dialectic of history that uh, Beatty was talking about in Fahrenheit 451 that you ran us through, those steps, I mean, what's chilling about that is you can see our culture in one way or the other all the way through all of those steps. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we talked about that as you read them. There are corollaries they are really powerful today. Um, and it's ultimately, um, it reminds me, and I think it's a good segue to talk about Nathaniel Hawthorne has this really short, it's like a fable. It's written almost like a, um, an allegory. Um, and it's called uh, Earth's Holocaust. And, and in, in this, the people of the earth basically are going around just sort of burning things that they don't think is useful anymore. And so it began, I mean, things from machinery to everything that is part of everything, every kind of production of human culture gets disassembled and burned basically in this kind of, um, bliss that you describe. I think you use the term bliss to talk about yes. um, the, set, the last step there. And, um, the um, uh, I want to read just a couple of passages. When they finally get to the books, uh, that's just the thing," said a modern philosopher. "Now we shall get rid of the weight of dead men's thought, which has hitherto pressed so heavily on the living intellect that has been incom- that it has been incompetent to any effectual self exertion. Well done, my lads! Into the fire with them! Now you are enlightening the world, indeed. Right, um, and so." What I get that statement saying is that this stuff is difficult and keeps us from moving forward, right? And and keeps us from just doing things. And so the um, expedience that we're looking for, the practicality that we're looking for, this makes more difficult. Let's get rid of it. Um, And therefore, you are enlightened. And I think that that's a really um, great play on um, words right there. And then ultimately... they get to the Bible, okay? And this is where I want to kind of end on this. Um, I, want to, I don't want to read the whole thing. In the general dest- destruction of books already described, a holy volume that stood apart from the catalog of human literature and yet in one sense was at its head, had been spared. But the titan of innovation, angel or fiend, double in his nature and capable of deeds befitting both characters, at first shaking down only the old and rotten shapes of things, had now as it appeared, laid his terrible hand upon the main pillars which supported the whole edifice of our moral and spiritual state, the Bible. Um, The inhabitants of the earth had grown too enlightened to uh, define their faith within a form of words or to limit the spiritual by any analogy to our material existence. Truths, which, which the heavens trembled at, were now but a fable of the world's infancy. Uh, And then the kind of key passage here. Therefore, as the final sacrifice of human error, what else remained to be thrown upon the embers of that awful pile except the book, capital B, which, uh, though a celestial revelation to the past ages, was but a voice from a lower sphere as regarded the present race of man? It was done. Upon the blazing heap of falsehood and worn-out truth, things that the earth had never needed or had ceased to need or had grown childishly weary of fell the ponderous church Bible, the great old volume that had lain so long on the cushion of the pulpit. And whence the pastor's solemn voice had given holy utterance upon so many a Sabbath day. And it goes on. But I just think that that's such a like haunting image, particularly in the uh, context of fundamentalist um, zeal to eliminate offending culture, right? When you do that, right. you create the circumstances by which your own, you know, foundational text, your own kind of um, think to the eternal and to truth um, also gets burned, right? <laughs> and so right. I, I just think that that story, it's a simple little story. It's not great literature, right? And it, it very much reads like a fable. Um, but it's actually really powerful and actually a really nice companion to Fahrenheit 451. At some point I might kind of teach these two things together. Um, but, uh, I don't know if you have any, um, uh, any other like short stories that you want to talk about, but I, that's the one I wanted to talk about. So.
2: No, um, the only one that I would want, that I had planned for was, uh, 451. So I'm good on that part.
0: Yeah. Well, Jay, I, that'll wrap up this episode. We're just over an hour. It's not too bad. Um, and so uh, hopefully the listener will uh, take this and, and visit their library, um, think more deeply about how important books are to us, even though, I mean, even in the digital sphere. I mean, I'm not someone who's anti-e-reader or anti-Kindle, which is an interesting name. We should talk more about the name, the Kindle, um, <laughs> <laughs> as, a, uh, as a form of book. I think that that's... Uh, probably something maybe that the the listener can uh, elaborate upon for us on the facebook page but uh, i mean think about what you're doing uh what we have as as a culture in libraries and why it's so important um to to keep that going in whatever form we keep it going but this banned books week this was uh released in conjunction with that uh it is really something that's important for us to consider um jay do you have any final thoughts
2: I just hope that we've raised more questions than we've given answers. I'm sure we did that.
0: So, uh, well, Jay Eldred, thanks again uh, for all your time and all your work here in Effort. Uh, and Effort. Uh, and we'll you'll hear from Jay again. Uh, if you guys haven't checked out the other programs on the uh, Christian Humanist uh, radio network, there's a whole slew of them. If you go to christianhumanist.org, there's uh, links to all the shows. And uh, and there's the Christian Feminist Podcast, the Christian Humanist Podcast, Book of Nature, City of Man, Christian Humanist Profiles. You have so many things to uh, help you think through the world uh, that we hope to provide here through this network. So give it a give it a shot. Remember our iTunes account. I'd like to get uh, a few more um, people listening to the show, uh, and I'm understanding that iTunes is a way to do that. So if you could just take five seconds, go to iTunes, and leave a review, uh, more people will find us. So... Um, for Jay Eldred then, I'm Danny Anderson uh, thanking you and wishing you a happy Band Books Week.